Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Again, we'll have uh, Brian Clemson come up for the scripture reading. If you wouldn't mind opening your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. First John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by the water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there is that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God, that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. John 5 6 verses 6 through 12. Thank you, Brian. Before we get into that, I'll just a reminder, we'll be serving, uh, celebrating together the Lord's Supper this morning. We'll go right into that right after, um, right after the sermon, right as the sermon. If you're worshiping with us at home, uh, we encourage you to participate with us, and so uh, you even now, as I'm opening here, you're welcome to go grab some crackers and some juice or something like that, and uh, we, we do encourage you to do that if you're worshiping from home. And if you're here in the room, uh, if you didn't get one of these little cups, we will make sure. <laughs> it's times like that, I'm really glad I'm not Catholic, because this would be a disaster if I had dropped <laughs> uh, we will get you one of these, and it has not been dropped on the floor. Let's pray and uh, ask the Lord's help as we get into the, the text this morning. Lord, thank you so much for, uh, for your gifts to us, your kindness, your mercy, your patience, your forbearance. Thank you for uh, this wonderful passage and the hope and the, the life that we see here as we see John uh, really laying out the gospel for us here as we close in on the end of the book, and we would ask you to bear witness with our hearts exactly what you know we need to hear from you today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each and every one of our hearts be pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
I happened to grab a fax off the church printer this last week. Our, our printer there in the office doubles as a fax. It receives and, and sends faxes, and faxes just kind of come in sometimes. And um, I had printed something, and there was a fax there as well. So I grabbed this fax, and, you know, you look at it to see what it is before you throw it away. And um, it, it was a letter. So I kind of stopped because it was a letter. It was a personal letter. And this uh, letter had really good news, really good news. It was uh, from a financial consultant in Africa. And uh, he, he explained that he had $100 million in his possession. He'd somehow come into to custody of this money. And he wanted to make me his business partner. It was really awesome. He, he of all the people here in America that he could have chosen, he'd chosen me. Um, actually, it did just say, dear sir, so he might have met you, Andrew, but hey, I picked up the facts. So <laughs> I, figured, I figured it was for me. And uh, he, he proposed a 70-30 split. 70-30. He actually never said who was going to get the 70, but I figure even 30% of $100 million is a lot of money, so still sounded like a pretty good deal. And uh, all I needed to do was send him an email. I just had to email him back. He wanted me to fill out some forms. I'm not sure, probably some banking forms, something like that. But uh, it was very easy, he said. All I had to do was contact him back, and we could get the whole thing underway. Now, of course, I did not believe it for a minute. Don't worry, those of you who are like, oh, did he give away the church bank account number? Wait a second. Uh, don't worry, I, I never believed it for a minute, and neither did you, right? That's why you started to laugh as soon as you realized what I was describing. We all know that kind of thing is bogus. It's a, it's a total fake. But let me ask you a question. How do you know that? How do we know? I mean, how do we know, you know, other than it being a fax, who faxes anymore, but uh, other than the fact that it was a fax, how do we know that it wasn't a legitimate kind of a thing? And the answer, of course, is that there's no reason at all for me to trust the person who sent that fax. There was actually a name attached to it. He tried to have some credibility. I can't even remember what the name was, some kind of important-sounding sort of a name. But, but there was absolutely no connection there. I didn't know this person. I didn't recognize the name. Uh, and more importantly, it, was a, it's a, it followed the pattern of a common scam. This one's been around for decades, right? The whole, you know, person in, in another country, a third world country usually, who needs help getting his money out of the country. I mean, it's been around for years and years and years. And so it never, we would never trust something like that, not even for a second, because we know we don't trust the witness. We don't trust, trust the one who's testifying to all this stuff there in this email or this fax that we've sent. The passage we're looking at today actually grapples with a similar question. And the question John wrestles with here is, how do you know you can trust Jesus? How do you know? I mean, it's clear with something like that facts, but, but how about our faith, our belief in Jesus Christ? How do we know we can trust Jesus? And this is actually a really important question in the flow of John's argument. We're getting close now to the end of the letter. We have one more Sunday after this, and we'll finish up with, with 1 John. And I've told you a few times now that there are several, you know, three or four key themes that run through the whole letter, and maybe the most important key theme is that we need to believe in Jesus. We need to believe in Jesus. Very simple, the way John, you know, his, his language can be kind of difficult to work through sometimes, but his message is very simple. We need to believe in Jesus Christ. And we actually talked about that last week, because here in the last chapter, he's coming back to this theme. I think this is the one he's going to end on, is belief in Jesus. And so last week we talked about believing in Jesus, and we really focused, he focused in verses 1 through 5 on the experience of believing in Jesus. He talked about things we experience because we put our faith in Jesus. And so we talked about joy, we, the four types of joy that we experience in our relationship, and because we've put our faith in Christ. 
That's verses 1 through 5. In verses 6 through 12, John takes a step back from that, and, and I think he's, he's answering for us a more basic question, and it's a, actually a two-part question, which is, what's the content of this belief? So he keeps telling us to believe in Jesus, but what is it we're supposed to believe? And he's maybe he's hinted at it along the way. I won't say he's been silent on it, but as he's moving to his own conclusion to the letter, what, what is it we're supposed to believe about Jesus? And then part two to the question, and how do we know it's true? How do we know that we can actually trust this content, these things we're supposed to believe about Jesus? And, and this is what he, he gets at. This is what he's doing in verses 6 through 12, I think. And his answer, not everyone's going to like his answer, but his answer is that we need to believe what God says. We need to believe what God says. If you could please advance it. This thing is not working for me anymore. We, you know, um, yeah, Margaret, if you could advance the slide, please, for me. I'm not able to do it today. Uh, we need to believe what God says. We need to believe God's testimony. He has a testimony that he makes about Jesus Christ, and that's what we need to believe. Now, if you don't believe God's testimony, then you're not going to like that answer, but that's the answer John's going to give us. We need to believe what God says about Jesus, and the reason we believe it is because God says it. That's, that's what he says. That's in verse 9. It's actually in the middle. Let me take you to the middle first. It's verse 9. He says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Right? So he's talking about the testimony. And so what he does there in verse 9 is he starts with a common human experience. And the experience is that we believe people when they say things. We believe people when they say things. Maybe not that fake facts, but, but generally speaking, we believe people. And you say, well, I don't. I'm a very suspicious person. I always question everything. No, you don't. No, you don't. You, you take people at, at their word, right? I mean, here's a, a, a simple kind of a... Let, let's say... Um, I was visiting this church today, right? Let's say I was visiting this church, and uh, I'm, I'm passing through. I'm on my way to California. I'm driving through to California, and I have a conversation with you afterwards, and I ask you, um, hey, listen, I'm, I've, I've got to tank up before I go. What's the best place here in Atlantic, Iowa? You live here. What's the best place in Atlantic to get gas? You're going to tell me your favorite place. You've got a gas station you like to go to. Maybe the price is better. Maybe the water's always clean and that dippy thing, you know, and you like to wash your windows every time. Whatever your reason is, there's a gas station you like to go to. And when somebody says to you, what gas station is the best gas station in town? You're going to say the one that you like to go to. And you know what? I asked your advice. I'm probably going to take it. All right, unless you like act really shady, I'm, I'm going to go to the gas station that you told me to go to. I'm going to receive your testimony, if I can use John's language from verse 9. I'm going to receive your testimony. So yeah, we do. We listen to each other all the time. We, we take people's testimony all the time. John's point in verse 9 is if we do that with people, how much more should we do it with God? How much more with the good and great God of heaven and earth? How much more should we believe when God tells us something? And so he, he says this there in verse 9. And then for most of the rest of the passage surrounding that verse 9, verses 6 through 12, he's telling us what it is God says that we need to believe. All right, so why do we believe it? God says, what is it we're supposed to believe? That's what he does in the rest of it. And what we have here, it's, it's, it's classic John. He doesn't go all Paul on us and lay out, number one, you should believe, number two, you should. He doesn't do that the way Paul might, like in Romans. Uh, Paul doesn't number his things, but you know what I mean. Uh, but instead, what John does is he gives us four word pictures, four, four really, they're four symbols. And I want to share those with you in terms of four words. There are four words that John uses, and if you take them together, the four words we're going to look at this morning, they summarize the gospel. 
Hence my title this morning, The Gospel in Four Words. He's got four words here. Here's what you need to believe about Jesus. It's summed up in four words. So when you leave here today, uh, you'll, you'll have four words you could, for your own, own purposes anyway, use to think about the, the gospel of Jesus. It might even be useful for sharing. I don't know, but, but it's, four, it's the gospel in four key words. Let me show you what I mean. Here, here they are. Number one, the first key word is water. Water. And water reminds us that Jesus lived for us. If, if we ask ourselves, what do we need to believe about Jesus Christ? John says, well, water. Water. You need to believe what the water stands for. It stands for the fact that Jesus lived for us. Now, Back up to last week's passage, look at the end of verse 5. The end of verse 5, John is talking about believing, right? Remember, we talked about it last week, believing in Jesus. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In verse 6, he keys off of that reference, and your Bible might break it into a new section, or, and there's, it's obviously it's a new verse, but when John writes it, it's just the next sentence, and he keys right off of what he just said, and so he picks up on this idea of believing, and so he said, and, and it's, it's an implied question, let me tell you who you're believing, you're believing he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. This is he who came by water, uh, he says, that first part of that sentence there. So it's, 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 it's water, John says. Here's what we're believing. We're, it's water. <laughs> now, John, what does that mean? What do you mean water? What do you mean water? What's he trying to get us to think about here? Well, I think the best answer is that, and this is what I'm going to submit to you, is, is that it's, it's the baptism. Uh, this is one of those, the baptism of Jesus. And so this is definitely one of those passages. I'll tell you this. If you uh, check five commentaries on John, you're going to get five different opinions on, uh, you know, different, some variety on how to interpret these different symbols. But there's actually consensus, and the consensus on how to understand what he means here by water is that he's talking about, he's making us think about the baptism of Jesus. First and foremost, that's what's going to come to mind. So we're talking about the life of Jesus, because the baptism of Jesus that's actually how he started his earthly ministry, right? His, his earthly ministry ends at the cross. It begins the formal ministry when Jesus is unveiled as a, a teacher and a rabbi and a public figure. Is, he's baptized, right? So he goes to the River Jordan. He goes down to the river where, where John the Baptist, not the author of this book, but uh, his, actually his cousin, John the Baptist, is, is baptizing people for the forgiveness of their sins, and Jesus goes and does that. And it's a significant, actually all four of the Gospels, uh, the three synoptics refer to it, uh, I'll describe it. John, I, I believe, only refers to it, but all four Gospels have the baptism of Jesus. And the thing about the baptism of Jesus is that he didn't need to do it. Of all the human beings who have ever lived, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the only one who didn't need to be baptized. And yet he went and did it, right? Because baptism is a symbol of repentance, turning away from sin. Jesus had no sin to turn from. And it's a symbol of cleansing of sin. And Jesus had no sin to be cleansed from. And yet Jesus was baptized anyway. Why? To show his identification with us, right? And so it's the water. It's his, his identification, his connection to us. Why did Jesus stand in line, get into the water? John said, no way, I don't need to baptize you because John knows who he is. And Jesus says, do it anyway. It's the right thing to do. Why? It's to give us an example, but more than that, it's to show his solidarity with the people he came to save. It's to show his connection to us. And so his baptism, in a very real way, emphasizes his humanity, 
It's not the only thing it's doing, but it's the thing I think, given how much John has emphasized the humanity of Jesus in this letter, remember, he's fully God and fully man, it emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. So he wasn't sinful like us, but he was human like us. That's why the water, that's what the water reminds us of, that Jesus lived for us. And then when you, when you come at it from that angle, when you, when you start thinking about, okay, so the water, John means water here as a symbol of the earthly life of Jesus, you start to see all kinds of other things click into place for us. So, uh, for example, um, water, water is a, as, a, as a general thing represents that which is ordinary, right? It's one of the most common, ordinary things in our existence, like water and air, right? They're right up there at the top of it. Uh, Water is part of everyday life. We drink water, right? Even if you're not a big water drinker, you're still taking water in all the time. We drink water. We bathe in water. We wash our hands in water. We use water to clean things. What do they tell us? 80%, 90%, some part of our bodies is made up of water, right? And so water is is this common thing. It's this common part of everyday life. And that's how Jesus chose to come, right? How is water a good symbol for the earthly life of Jesus? Well, that's how Jesus came to earth. He lived this, excuse me, his culture's version of a common life, right? He was a king, but he didn't come as a king, right? You know that. He, 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 he came as a peasant, Right? He, he, he was a, a peasant by birth, a carpenter, a laborer by trade. Uh, the point is he was a normal person. If it weren't for his teaching and his miracles, he wouldn't have stood out at all. He was a normal person, just like the vast majority of human beings who have ever lived on this planet, including you and me, just common, regular people, including us. And so water does that. How else does water remind us of his, uh, make us think about his earthly ministry? Well, here's another one. Water reminds us of his miracles, so this is it's going to feel like it's the opposite of the common, but, but again, it's what happened in his earthly ministry. So many of, his, of the miracles Jesus did in his earthly ministry, those three years, involved water. Right? If you think about it, they involved water. The first miracle Jesus did, according to the Gospel of John, and John likes to rearrange his materials sometimes, so it may not have been technically the first miracle Jesus did, but the first miracle in John's Gospel the first miracle sign, he calls it, is, involves water. Do you remember which one? It's the water to wine. He goes to a wedding, they run out of wine, his mother implore, you know, kind of imposes on him, he's like, okay, and he convert, you know, changes many gallons of water into wine. Water into wine. And a lot of times when we, we read that story or we, we preach through that passage, we like to emphasize the wine part, right? Because that's the miracle part. And, and so, you know, and the wine represents joy and the goodness of life with God and all the rest. But it started with water. That miracle starts with water. Other miracles, Jesus walked on water at least twice that we're told about in the Gospels when he walked on water. He calmed storms at sea at least twice. He calmed Water and wave, you know, wind and waves. Twice that happens in the Gospels that's recorded. He hung out with fishermen all the time. In fact, he even made a few of them his, his apostles, his most closest uh, followers. Uh, several of them were, were fishermen, and fishermen spend a lot of time in the water. Right? And water is his key part. In fact, speaking of fish, uh, at least three of his miracles that I could think of involved fish. Right? And, and fish... If you're dealing with fish, you're dealing with water. So, so water's all over the place with Jesus. Even the night before he goes to the cross, what's one of the last things he does? He gets down on his knees, he takes a bucket of water, 
and he washes his disciples' feet, a symbol of his service. What was, his, what was the earthly life of Jesus all about? It was about serving miserable us, serving human beings. And there he is with water, serving uh, his, his disciples just hours before he goes to the cross. And so you take all that, you know, any one of those by themselves, I don't know if it'd be convincing, but you pack, stack it all up together and you say, water, yeah, water. Water makes me think of the earthly life of Jesus. He, he walked among us, living, breathing, sleeping, eating, just like we do. He really is, was and is fully human. And he did that for us. See, what you're going to get, and John won't emphasize it a lot, but it's core to the gospel. This is why we can be saved. It's because Jesus is fully man. It's because he's fully human. A lot of times when we think, especially this time of year, right? It's two weeks out from Easter. A lot of times when we think, you know, what did Jesus Christ do to save us? A lot of times we want to, we want to run straight to the cross. And the cross is very important. In fact, that's where we're going in about 30 seconds. Yes, the cross is very, very important. But actually, if you think about it, if you look at it from the Scripture's perspective, the way God saves us through Jesus, it actually doesn't start with his death. It starts with his life. It starts with his life. Before he could ever die for us, first he had to live for us, that perfect sinless life that he lived for us. That's what the water means. That's what John has us thinking about. Word number two, the second word John uses here, is the word blood. Blood. Uh, and uh, the blood reminds us that Jesus died for us. This one's, I think, a little more obvious. You don't, there's the, the, the commentaries don't argue about this one. It's pretty obvious what this one is talking about. Blood. Jesus died for us. And so it stands for his death on the cross. And it also stands, if you look at it scripturally, and I'll show you a little bit what I mean. If you look at it scripturally, it stands for everything he accomplished for us on the cross all the stuff that comes out of the cross. And so blood stands for the cross itself, the actual crucifixion, but then everything that comes to us out of that. And so verse 6, again, he says, uh, he actually puts the two together. It's, it's hard to break them apart. It's, it's the same verse. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only. It wasn't just his, his earthly life. It was also by the blood. It was by the water and the blood, John says. It took both. This is his point. Lest we think it was just enough that Jesus set an example. Remember we talked weeks ago, if you've been here for this, all of this series, we talked about you know, the, um, the example theory of atonement. Throw that right out, John says. You know, it's, it's not just that Jesus set us a good example with his life. No, we needed the blood. It's the water and the blood, uh, John says. Now, given how important it is, he doesn't talk about it a whole lot. He uses the word blood three times in the paragraph we're looking at today, and then he only uses it one other time in this letter. And you might remember where it was. It was way back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 7, he talked about the blood of Jesus. He said, the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. So what does he want us to be thinking about here in chapter 5 when we think about the blood of Jesus? Well, he definitely wants us to think about purification, you know, our sins being washed away. So 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, that reminds us, when he talks about it here, it reminds us that we have forgiveness because of Jesus. But then other than that, he doesn't really say a lot about it. He doesn't say a lot about the blood of Jesus. And the reason, I think, is that he wants us to bring in everything else that's written in the New Testament. Remember, John's one of the last authors of the New Testament. This book we're studying together is very late. It's one of the last books in the New Testament to be written. So all the other stuff is already on, on uh, paper, right? It's, it's all out there already. And so we start thinking of other things that the Bible says about the blood of Jesus. 
We think of what Paul says in Colossians, for example, Colossians 1.20. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Through him, through Jesus, uh, God reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We have peace with God. We have peace with God because of the blood of Jesus. Uh, Ephesians 1.7, we have redemption. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Romans 5, 9, we've been justified by his blood. Now we, have, we stand as not guilty before God because of the blood of Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 9, 12, uh, Jesus himself entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood. The author of Hebrews describes from there how we therefore have access. We have access to God because of the blood of Jesus. Acts 20, we belong to Jesus because of his blood. It's Acts 20, 28, Jesus bought the church with his own blood. And I think all of that comes in here. When when he says uh, Jesus uh, came by water and by blood, and that that he's going to say in verse 8 that the water and the blood testify, they bear witness. We'll get to that in just a second. He's talking about all these things that God does for us through Jesus and through his cross. There's actually one other verse that uh, I think John wants us to remember, and it might be the one that stands out the the first (laughs) in in his own mind because he wrote it. And you might want to turn to this one. It's in the Gospel of John, John chapter 19, or you can just listen, I'll read it. But it's uh, John 19, I want, to, I want to read verse 34, but I actually want to read a couple of verses to set it up first. And so this is John's account of the crucifixion, and we're going to see water and blood together. We're going to see water and blood together here, just like John talks about in today's passage And so we read in verse 30 about the death of Jesus. When Jesus had received the sour wine, this is John 19, 30, Jesus said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Verse 31, since it was the day of preparation and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So when someone was crucified, if they wanted to make it end now, they would break the person's legs and the weight of the body would be released and the person would die almost instantly. So they want to hasten this thing along now. It's going to get dark soon. And so the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first. Remember, there were three that day. And they broke the legs of the other who had been crucified with him. They were still alive. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. Now, that verse, maybe you've run into that verse before, that verse is important for a couple of reasons. Uh, one reason it's important is it's actually, it has an apologetic purpose that it serves, like, like defense of the faith, apology in that sense, the apologetics we talk about, uh, because what verse 34 does is it verifies that Jesus died. You know, sometimes people will try to suggest, well, he didn't really die on the cross. He was just felt really bad, and then they woke him up later. You know, he's just like, a, it's called the swoon theory. Verse 34 says, bah, to your swoon theory. Because what verse 34 does is it proves he was dead. Uh, and it's a biology thing. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, not a doctor. But, but as I understand it, um, when our heart stops pumping, the blood almost immediately begins to settle, and usually the heart kind of, you think about like stirring a drink or something, right? Uh, as soon as that heart's not pumping anymore, the blood starts to separate out in its constituent parts. And so the cells, the heavier cells, will separate out from the plasma, the liquid, the water, really, is, is, is what it is. So much of our blood is water. And 
after, not very too much later, just a little while later, they'll, it'll be really starting to separate out. And so when that soldier pokes a spear into the side of Jesus and water and blood come out, not just, not blood, but kind of this gush of water and blood, that is medical evidence that Jesus was dead because that doesn't happen if you're not dead. And so, it was med- it's, 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 so it's got that apologetic purpose. But here's what's going on in 1 John chapter 5. John's not talking about the medical purposes here. John's talking about a theological purpose. Here he is, water and blood, he says. It's water and blood. The two came together in this very vivid, you know, very vivid way in John 19, 34. The two came together. Jesus lived for us, and then he died for us. We are saved by his, his life and death. It was the water and the blood. We need both. That brings us to the third thing, because all three of these go together. The third thing we believe about Jesus uh, has to do with the word spirit. Oh, thank you. Yes, uh, uh, the word spirit. And so we have water, blood, and spirit. And what the spirit does is lives within us. And so the word spirit gets us thinking about the transformative, regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, and now the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's what John affirms next. Let me read uh, the sweep now of 6 through 8. It says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. So again, John's not going to go into details. He's using a lot of shorthand, lots of shorthand in this passage. But what he's talking about when he brings the Spirit into this formula now is he's talking about the rebirth. He's talking about being born again. And we talked about this last week because he talked about it. Remember at the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes, so there's that belief thing we're talking about, uh, who everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And so when we believe in Jesus, what does it say back in verse 1? New, new birth. New birth, new family, we're born again. And I stressed this last week, it's not just a metaphor, it's an actual miracle. We call it regeneration. The Holy Spirit comes and He dwells within us. He renews us, makes us new on the inside. This is all over the place in the Bible, right? Lots and lots of verses in your New Testament talk about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That's exciting stuff, people. I know it's Saturday, Sunday morning, you're a little tired, but it's exciting stuff. You're a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Colossians 2.13, you were dead in your trespasses, but now God has made you alive uh, together with him. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did that. He made us alive in Christ. And now he dwells within us. He lives within us. And what does John say in verse 8? He says, those three, to get, those three work together. Right? They, they work together. The Spirit and the water and the blood together testify to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is how so much of what we, uh, hopefully we don't take for granted, so much of what we celebrate about being followers of Jesus, this so much comes in with the, these three coming together. So when he says testify, this is, this is how it's working out in our lives. It's not just like in your theology book. Uh, this is how we have peace. Right? It's the Holy Spirit of God applying the life and death of Jesus to our lives. It's how we love people who are unlovable. Right? He's told us so many times to, to love one another in this book. This is how we do it. 
It's the Spirit applying the gospel of the water and the blood. This is how we, we resist sin and turn away from temptation and all the rest of that. It's, it's, it's the Spirit applying the gospel to our lives. And so you got the first three. Right? So in this text, water, blood, Spirit. Verses 9 and 10, John focuses on, and I already addressed it a little bit, he focuses on this question of why we should believe this. So it's all well and good to say, you know, water says that water means this, blood means this, Spirit re- reminds us of this. But then he says, yeah, but you got to believe it, right? And, and that's this whole idea of testimony, verse 9. If we receive the testimony of man, the testimony of God is greater. Why? For this is the testimony of God. <laughs> For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. This is what God says about Jesus, what I just told you. It's verses 6, 7, and 8. It's the water, the spirit, and the blood. And again, he's using all these shorthand terms, which is why we have to take the time to understand it. But this is what God says about Jesus, he says. And so if I'm going to believe you when you tell me what gas station to go to, then I certainly can believe God when he tells me about his own son. Uh, Verse 10, if you look at your text, verse 10, now, now we're going to start to get more practical. Because what John does in verse 10, he says, okay, now you got a choice. you got a choice to make about this testimony that God makes about his son. You know, it's all well and good to talk about right doctrine, but it's not good enough to just have the right doctrine. You got to do something with it. You got to do something with it. And so he brings us back in verse 10 to believing, right? Which again, key theme in 1 John. He's just talked about it. Verse 1, talked about believing in Jesus. Verse 5, he talked about believing in Jesus. Now he does it again in verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The testimony, which he just talked about, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So, two choices, right? If, if we believe in the Son of God, then John's language, the testimony lives within us. I think that's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit and the, and the, and the applied gospel, right? So being born again, really, is, is what he's talking about. The testimony lives within us. What does he mean? You're born again believe in Jesus, you're born again. So it's a a reference to being born again. So that's option A, right? Option A, believe God's testimony about Jesus. Believe what the water and the blood and the Spirit stand for. You're born again. There is another option. Let's call it option B. Uh, Option B is don't believe it. It's on the table, right? It's right there in verse 10. Don't believe it. Whoever does not believe, John says. Whoever does not believe God. And, And so that one's an option too. You could, you could not believe. Pay attention, though, to who you're not believing. Pay attention to who you're not believing if you don't believe in Jesus. Sometimes, uh, and you, you see this, sometimes um, people think that they're rejecting the church when they reject Jesus. Right? So I don't like the church. The church hurt me. People were mean to me when I was a teenager one time, and I, I just hate the church. I don't like the church, so I'm going to reject Jesus. Or they, they think they're rejecting, you know, traditions, or, or, you know, I don't like traditions, and so I'm going to reject Jesus. Or, you know, I don't like that obnoxious preacher, you know, or I heard some story about some, or a whole bunch of stories about a whole bunch of obnoxious preachers who did something nasty. So I'm going to reject Jesus because I don't like that obnoxious preacher. John won't let us get away with that. John doesn't let us get away with it. You're rejecting the church or you're rejecting the obnoxious preacher. John says, no, you're rejecting God. If you reject Jesus, you're not rejecting the church. You're rejecting God. And, and not just rejecting him, look how John puts it. John says, you're calling God a liar. If you reject Jesus, you're calling God a liar. Whoever does not believe God 
has made him a liar. Believe God's testimony about Jesus has made God a liar. How does that work? How does rejecting Jesus make God a liar? Uh, If I say to you, I have two sons, they're both uh, pretty tall. If I say to you, uh, my son is six feet tall, and you say, no, he's not. I've seen your, your son's short. Your son's not six feet tall. You haven't used the word, but you've just called me a liar. I don't, know, I don't know my own son's height. That's what you're telling me if you start arguing with me about how tall my son is. That, John says, is what we do if we deny God's testimony about Jesus. God says what he says about Jesus, and if we reject it, then we are we're calling God a liar, John says. That's what's at stake. And I'll uh, go so far as to suggest that's not a good idea. That's probably not a good idea, not if you want things to go well for you. And John really isn't going to go to the negative. He just leaves it hanging there. Uh, But I think what's left hanging there is that if we reject Jesus, we're not born again, right? Since everything's been in the language of the new birth, the family of God, uh, leaving the world behind, becoming one of God's children, if we don't believe in Jesus, then we don't have access to all of that. Right? And so there's, there's that piece of it. But John doesn't really dwell on that part, so we, we won't either. Instead, we'll dwell on what John dwells on, which is our fourth word. There's a little bit of an interlude there, but our fourth word is now the word life. So water, blood, spirit, life. And life, life's the last word John's going to camp on. He's going to use it like, I think it's four times, or it might be six times. I think it was just four in the last two verses. And life, the word life, takes us forward. Jesus gives us eternal life. It's that promise of heaven. So uh, let, me, let me read verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal... And this is the testimony. It should be like a colon. And this is the testimony. That God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so if you look at this paragraph and you spend some time with it, well, you notice this idea of God's testimony just keeps coming up. It can, in this word testimony, I think the word testimony, either the noun or verb form, is used 10 times in this uh, relatively short passage. It's just it dominates the whole section. And, and he comes back to it again here. He says, so God's got this testimony. It's water, blood, spirit, and everything we talked about. And here's what comes out. If you put water, blood, spirit into the front end of the funnel, here's what comes out on the other end if you accept that testimony. Life. Eternal life. That's what it culminates in. The water and the spirit and the blood together testify to bring us, through what they mean, through what they stand for, bring us eternal life. So that's verse 11. And then verse 12, it just kind of repeats himself. Uh, He repeats himself, and and it's very black and white. Despite all of his metaphors and his flowery language, it's very black and white. You got one choice or the other, John says. It's binary, right? There's, there's no third option. You either have the sun and have life, or you don't have the sun and you don't have life. That's, that's verse 12. You say, what kind of life is he talking about? Well, we, we could certainly talk about kind of our lives now get better. and We have access to peace and joy, and he's our fortress and our strong tower, and all of these sorts of things. That's all true. And a lot of times, especially in the kind of 20th, 21st century, where we're so focused on the here and now, we like to talk very much about how eternal life is a quality of life that we live now. And that is true. But I actually think in its context, first and foremost, he's looking ahead. 
He's looking ahead to what comes after. He's talking about eternal life, which, which it also means that. So yes, Jesus gives us hope and peace and joy in this life now, and so we begin to walk in the, the glories of eternal life in this life here, but they're just like, they're like the appetizers at the, at, the, at the banquet. You know, it's just a foretaste of, of the eternal life that is waiting for us uh, in heaven. And that's, I think, what he's talking about here when he says, he who has the Son has life. See, there's a problem. The problem is we're all going to die. We're all going to die. And John, as he writes this letter, I was meditating on John, and here we are getting close to the end of this letter, and I was thinking about John. John is a very old man when he writes this letter. I've told you a few times, especially in the first sermon in this series, that John is the only living apostle at this point. This letter's written right around 90 AD. Paul's been dead for over 20 years. Peter, James, all those guys, they are long since dead. John's the only apostle who's left from that first generation of Christians. He's probably in his late 80s, maybe even in his 90s, when he writes 1 John. And so time is short, right? Time is short for him. And he might live another 20 years. I don't know if we know from tradition, but time is short. John knows unless Jesus returns very, very soon, he too is going to die. But he knows something else, right? You don't see any moroseness. There's no sadness. There's none of that bleeding through in this letter. Instead, what does he know? He knows that he who has the Son has life. And so he says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever believes in Jesus has life. And that's not just for John. That's not just for John. That offer is for every single one of us because you and I face the exact same reality. It is, it is part of our lives. I have about a, a dozen cousins on uh, my mother's side of the family. And uh, we're not real close, to tell you the truth. We're really spread out for a couple of generations now, spread out all across the country. And on top of that, there's a 30-year age gap between the oldest cousin and the youngest cousin. So it was a lot of big gap there. So, but, you know, you keep up with each other as best you can. And uh, I'm actually the oldest of that bunch of cousins. I'm the oldest of, if you count my brother and sister and I, there's probably 15 of us. And, uh, and I'm the oldest of the bunch. And uh, that maybe explains why I was really shocked by a text message my sister sent me about a month ago. It was a Saturday afternoon, and she just sent me a text, and the text just said, Jeff died last night. Jeff was the next oldest cousin. He's, uh, I'm the oldest, he's the second oldest, and he died in his sleep. He wasn't even 50 yet, uh, just, just, just didn't wake up the next day. I, I, he did have diabetes, so he wasn't, you know, tip-top health, wasn't perfect health or, or something like that. But his diabetes was controlled. He had all the right medicines and all the rest of it. Uh, no one was telling him he was in any danger of dying anytime soon. You know, that wasn't, that wasn't hanging over him. And yet he went to bed that night and he did not wake up the next morning. You all have stories like that. We all have stories like that because we all live with that. We don't like to think about it, but it's the reality. We don't know. We never know. Right? And every time there's a horrible accident or a cancer diagnosis or a story like my cousin Jeff, every time it happens, we remember, yeah, next week, the next day, the next hour, none of it's guaranteed to us. But if we trust, if we trust in Jesus, we know where we're going when it comes. We know where, if, whether we live to be 10 or 100, we know where, it go, where we're going when it comes. Uh, that last breath here is followed by the next, the first breath there. And why do we know it? We know it because of this stuff, right? This up here. Uh, he lived for us. He died for us. He lives within us. And he gives us eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the gospel in four words John gives us here. Water, blood, spirit, life. Uh, we're going to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper now. 
And uh, to prepare, I actually, with Easter just being a couple of weeks away, I wanted to read a longer section this morning. We're good on time. Um, I wanted to read uh, Matthew's account of, uh, of the, um, the Last Supper. And it just really, I won't spend a lot of time expositing it, but it just, some of these themes we've talked about even today stand out. So uh, I'm just, I'll just read Matthew 26. I want to read verses 17 through 28. It says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the Passover, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, "Uh, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. Verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. A few things, I think, just in those few verses. One is all the preparation. I've, that, that passage where he sends them to kind of set up for the, pa- for the Passover meal, and it's all ready already. <laughs> and it's not clear if it was a miracle Jesus did or if he had just made reservations or some combination of the two. But, but it reminds us of the preparation, right? It, it, it's, the cross did not happen to Jesus. He happened to the cross. He did it. He, he did it for us. And, and so there's that preparation. And then you see the sin that makes it necessary, you know, that, that really heartbreaking account where, where Judas is confronted and could yet turn, you know, you get the sense, at least on one level, yet he could yet repent and say, no, I'm not going to do that after all. I'm not going to betray you. And, and, and you have the betrayal of Judas. And, and quite honestly, we know in the end, they'll all run. They'll all betray Jesus. And that reminds us that we've all betrayed Jesus. And so that betrayal account reminds us, it's our sin, right? It's not Judas that sent Jesus to the cross, Right? It's, it's all of our sin that sent Jesus to the cross. And so it's, it's our sin that, that, that's why he, the, you know, the water and the blood was, was, a, was, was to deal with our sin, to make, to, to for gain forgiveness for our sin. And then, of course, the, the symbol of his provision, the bread and the cup. We've talked a lot about symbols today, water, blood, spirit, you know, all of those, those different things, the way he uses them. Here's two more, the cup, uh, the bread and the cup right? The, the bread and the wine, and those are, are symbols too, symbols of his body and his blood. And, and so you see that there as well. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and um, yeah, I'm just going to lead us in prayer, and then I'll, we'll make sure everybody's got a cup, and we'll, we'll share together. So would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you so much. Thank you for uh, your mercy and love for us. Thank you for your grace and compassion. Uh, you're so good, Lord. You're so good to us. And we, we begin right now as we prepare our hearts for the table. Uh, we just bow our heads in praise. Uh, thank you, God. Thank you for doing this for us. Uh, we uh, do not merit it. We do not deserve it. 
even the kindest, nicest people among us. Uh, we betrayed you, each of us, in our way. And you came to earth, Jesus. Father, you sent your one and only Son, your own beloved Son, to make a way for us. We praise you for that today. We confess our sin to you. Uh, even those of us who are, are born again, we continue to, fi- to fight, and sometimes we, we succumb. And so we take some time now to um, hear in the privacy of our minds, to uh, our hearts, to, to confess to you the sins. And we would just invite your Holy Spirit to search us and bring to mind anything, any unrepented sin that we need to confess to you now.